You are listening to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. We are a group of students at the University of North Texas Health Science Center who are passionate about mental health issues and fighting stigmas. The aim of this podcast is to educate our listeners on mental health and tell our experiences with honesty. We encourage you to consider only what feels best to you and to consult with your medical professional and or support team before doing anything that might jeopardize your physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental health. Some episodes may trigger an adverse reaction. If an episode is beginning to upset you, I advise that you please pause immediately and talk to your support team. With that being said, welcome to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. Let's dive in. Hi, my name is Matthew Joseph. Hi, everyone. I'm Hannah Curry. And today we're actually going to be talking about a topic that is very serious in nature. And I wanted to preface with several trigger warnings that the topic of suicide is one that is very individual to every person. Many people, I would argue, every person has had some sort of experience with it in the past. And I understand that this is a topic with immense levels of depth. While I've had my own individual experiences with it and will go into it with the level that I feel comfortable moving forward with, I will do my best to represent the topic as best I can with the understanding of how much there is to it. So bear with me and bear with us for what we'd be working with in terms of trying to represent this topic appropriately during this important time for a lot of people and that any resources that are available that we list, they will be in the description below. And I just want to mention, you are not alone. You know who I'm talking to. So since, like Matthew said, this is a very heavy topic, at any point in this episode, if you feel uncomfortable, don't feel like you have to keep listening. If you feel like you're in a state of crisis, here are some numbers that you can call or text. So the first is the National Suicide Hotline and Text Line, which is 1-800-273-8255. The Crisis Text Line, which is where you text HOME to 741741. And you can also call 1-800-273-TALK and press 1 or text to 838255. So like I said, at any point in this episode or after this episode or pretty much just any time that you're feeling like you really need to talk to somebody, these are some great resources for you. And I will mention that while it may not necessarily be the best resource given the history behind it, we will acknowledge that if it is an absolute necessity, 911 is still an option available. While there are, of course, other options that would be better in a crisis, that is still there as a resource for anybody who would need it. We just wanted to bring up this topic at all because, as many people know, this is Suicide Prevention Week. And it lasts through from Monday through Sunday, up right around Suicide World Suicide Prevention Day on September 10th, which is basically the day after this episode goes live. I'll start and end with the challenge of wear purple. It is representative of support for individuals who have been through the experience. And it is also another portion of a challenge to reach out for help if you are ready to receive it whenever you feel like it is the time to do so. There are resources that are available on their social media for the week, including basically facts related to suicide awareness at the Instagram page. And there's also going to be several different meetings that'll be done, including on Thursday, 
a Zoom meeting with the Dr. Charlotte Lipolis. And the purpose of that is discussing a very serious topic, suicidal ideation within the LGBTQIA community. And on Friday, there is a, for anybody who's local to Fort Worth, a walk for showing, for individuals who wear purple to show unity and support for prevention. So check all that out in the description below. But I just wanted to preface also that for any topics, we just want, we will try to give trigger warnings for anything that is particularly serious in nature. And moving forward, we'll be giving a lot of statistics, but also following up with personal anecdotes appropriately. And if there's anything that might be triggering to anybody for the process, feel free to skip ahead to a later portion. We will be noting the titles of what topics we're talking about. So just keep an eye out for that. All right. So first, we're going to talk a little bit about statistics around uh, suicide in general. Yes. So this first statistic says that according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in 2018, 48,344 Americans died by suicide with an estimated 1.4 million suicide attempts. Also, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States and the second cause of death for ages 10 to 34. And before reading the statistic, I knew that suicide was a huge issue, but just seeing the sheer number and seeing, yes, it's the second cause of death for ages 10 to 34. That's a very large age range. It really just enhances how important it is to talk about this topic. Uh, yeah, especially given that the World Health Organization, they estimate that about 800,000 suicides a year, roughly. And that means about 2,192 per day. And given the diverse number of of populations that experience or begin the process for this, it's insane. Right. So another one is that suicide is more common in men than women in all countries, but women were 1.4 times more likely to attempt suicide due to methods like poison that's less successful than firearms. Um, I personally don't really know why this is, why men and women have different methods of attempting suicide, but I think that it's definitely an important thing to note um, when we're talking about this and when you're talking to somebody who is thinking about taking their life. It's this whole conversation about, at least from the perspective of a man who has been in those circumstances, I would say part of it is the inherent pressures that exist. I mean, Anybody could tell you that part of it is the aspect of toxic masculinity, of course, but it is very much a thing in wanting to have this idea of being strong in a way that may be unattainable. And I know this is standard for many different uh, minority and non-minority communities to do so. I think ability is just a general thing among men that we have to be strong and not being able to be providers, be able to care for others effectively, uh, help protect others. There are circumstances that are just out of everybody's control. It happens. And failing to feel like being able to do so. And this is just giving an idea for it. There are ways that you can be decisive in committing to that mentality of, if I do this, then at least it's me committing to that. If I can't do any, every, all of the other things I feel like I should as a man. Right. At least 
wanting to bring up the topic. I think this is a topic that has a lot more depth to it, but just wanting to touch on it briefly because this is something with a lot of nuance to it, as I understand, but just on my personal understanding. Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So in general, though, demographic-wise, American Indian and Alaskan and Native youth and middle-aged individuals have the highest rate of suicide, followed by non-Hispanic white middle-aged and older males. And it is just a sad thing to see that African-American children under the age of 12 have, have a higher rate than white children. And that has its own massive range of implications. Right, yeah. It definitely shows what groups are you know, kind of like the target of mental health illnesses that aren't being taken care of and treated. Mm -hmm. uh, so some other statistics is that 60% of firearm deaths in the U.S. is due to suicide, and 90% of those who have died by suicide have a diagnosable mental health condition at the time That's of their insane. death, which to me is incredibly sad that there are ways that, you know, nine-tenths of suicide deaths could have been prevented with a proper mental health diagnosis. And I think that really shows how important it is to get help and that getting help is not something to be ashamed of because it's something that is, you know, definitely life-saving. Absolutely. Honestly, 90% of people who have, that is insane. So moving on to that point, we we're just going to also in the, in the next phase talking about risk factors that could lead to ideation being a possibility. Right. So the first risk factor that we want to talk about is that suicide does not discriminate. People of all genders, ages, and ethnicities can be at risk. And I've definitely seen this firsthand. And I've had to explain to some people that I have talked to about their suicidal ideations because one of the main things they say is I don't have it as hard as this person does so I shouldn't mm -hmm. be feeling like this or because I don't struggle as much as you know the person down the street from me I it doesn't it's not right for me to feel like this but I mean it's good to recognize the things in your life that you do have and that you can be grateful for but just saying like verbalizing I have it better in these areas than this person it doesn't really change how you feel on the inside. And it doesn't mean that your problems are less important or less valid than theirs. So I think that's definitely something to realize when you are going through these feelings of, oh, I should be more grateful for what I have. It's important to feel grateful, but it's also important to realize that what you have does not make you immune to mental health issues. Absolutely not. Right. And another risk factor is a prior suicide attempt and also depression and other mental health disorders. Those are really big yeah. ones. Yeah. I used to work in clinical studies with uh, substance use disorders in getting treatment for them. And that substance abuse is itself a risk factor. And the number of individuals who've mentioned that they've had prior history of attempting suicide themselves is insane and hearing their stories is honestly heart-wrenching another thing to note is family history of a mental health or substance use disorder it does have factors leading to um, ideation as well as the possibility and goodness gracious i believe anybody can attest to that honestly if they've had any sort of history with it right and going off of what matthew said about family history 
your family history and the environment that you're in can be a big risk factor without even realizing it. So family history of suicide, family violence, including physical or sexual abuse, having guns or other firearms in the home, your situation can really impact how you feel both physically and mentally. And so when you're thinking about why you're feeling this way, it's also important to analyze what environment you're in and how you were raised and how you've grown up can also, you know, influence how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And the thing about firearms is that, you know, how there are a lot of botched attempts, but the ones related to guns or firearms make it, and this is the morbid point, easier, which is why it is a higher risk factor. So as other factors that have existed are the sense of lack of control in life from having been in prison or jail or being exposed to other individuals' behavior. A big point is that if you're somebody who might have been the person they go to uh, for issues in the past because they felt that you might have been seen as somebody who was strong to them or somebody they looked up to. It is easy to have that increase risk if you already had others that existed towards pushing towards ideation. And that could also, and it doesn't make light of the fact that seeing somebody that you related to closely in the, in the news, for example, that it happened to, um, can uh, peripherally lead to your own experience feeling more intense as well. So trying not to make light of other people's experiences, it can be difficult when you're also trying to manage your own symptoms. So acknowledging, and I can attest to this, of just acknowledging when you need to might draw lines, knowing where you're at with things yourself is very important for risk factors. Right, exactly. Seeing other people go through those kind of experiences can have a bigger effect on you than you might think. Uh, and that's okay. Don't think that that is silly or, you know, weird. That is very normal. So the two last risk factors that we're going to talk about is medical illness and being between the ages of 15 and 24 years or over age 60. So for that last risk factor, between the ages of 15 and 24 years, that was really interesting to me because that period of time, you're, you know, kind of transitioning from middle school to high school, and then you're going through college and, you know, you're setting up your whole life. It is a very intense period of your life, 15 to 24. So many things in your life change. How you look at the world really changes because you're going from childhood to adulthood. It can be a very stressful time. So that age range to me now makes a lot of sense you know, why that is a risk factor in itself. Mm -hmm. I would also, for similar reasons, I'm fairly familiar with why over the age of 60 also is as well. I mean, a trans almost a transitionary point in a lot of people's lives of, well, as it said for in psychology, it's a generativity versus stagnation. <laughs> it's that feeling of how much have you been able to do at the point in your life and while that may not be the right, necessarily the best way to think of things, it's also just how some people may think of just what have I done at this point in my life, or certain factors that are even more unfortunate of the way that geri uh, geriatric patients are being treated at that point in their life. Maybe there's something that happened that reduced their independence 
that they that they might have been familiar with for a long period of time and suddenly that's taken away that can drastically increase risk factors so this only reiterates the importance of getting the support and help necessary is not restricted by age it's important at any point in life right exactly so we'll just also want to talk about uh, in the next section, a little bit more about warning signs of potential ideation. So a big one that's obvious is like talking about wanting to die or wanting to kill themselves being the most frank one, of course. Yes. One of the warning signs is talking about feeling empty, hopeless, having no reason to live or feeling like they can't go on. I know when I've talked to some of my students, because I was an RA Mm -hmm. when I was in college, and when I would talk to residents that were feeling like this, I would ask them, you know, what in your life brings you joy? What do you wake up in the morning and, you know, do you have something that you're excited about? Just kind of thinking about what is giving them, you know, excitement to live and go through their day. And if they say, like, I just don't feel anything. I don't feel like anybody needs me or there's no reason for waking up in the morning. That's definitely a big warning sign to me that they're just feeling this gaping hole of emptiness in their life and it's really making them feel not good about themselves or their life in general. Of course. And another warning sign would be planning or looking for uh, means to end their own lives, such as searching online, stockpiling uh, medications that could help them with the process or require or obtaining potentially lethal items that includes the mentioned firearms. Um, those are pretty visual methods of doing so. We mentioned a lot of visual means of doing so, but just to reiterate, and we'll be talking about it next, they're not always as well-known or open as the ones we've mentioned so far. Mm -hmm. More warning signs, talking about great guilt or shame and talking about feeling trapped or feeling like there is no solutions. Sometimes people feel like they've just exhausted all their resources for trying to feel a sense of belonging or purpose or a reason to go on. And it's important for us to analyze that and ask them, you know, why are you feeling this way? Like, why do you feel like there's nothing left for you to do? Another mention that in a way that it might be represented is the feeling of unbearable pain on a both physical or emotional level. And this can be kind of hard to see or discriminate between people who might already have, for example, chronic health issues, whether of any age and it might be masking some of the also emotional implications of what that physical pain is doing and leading to wanting that feeling of, I want to die, for example. Another one, talking about being a burden to others, that one is hits very close to home with me mm-hmm. because in the times that I've been struggling and I feel like I want to talk to somebody, but when I actually go to do so... I just think, what if I'm bothering them? What if I'm, you know, encroaching on their lives? And they're all busy. They don't have time for this. Right, (laughs) right. Or it's just going to sound like I'm complaining or trust me, people in your life that care about you will make the time. Yes. Even those resources that we listed in the beginning, those people are there to help you. You're not being a burden at all. There are ways that if it's something you're worried about, there are ways you can plan how to assist in reducing the burden as well 
to logistically do so. You can have prepped material that lets you know what are things that make that make life worth living for me. What are some air uh, places I like to go to that help relax me? What are some mm-hmm. things that might be concerning to me? There's basically ways that you can set it up to where it is easier for somebody else if that is something that is a legitimate concern. But in general, never feel like wanting to discuss this is something that prevents you from receiving care. This is not some it is not necessarily a burden to people who of anybody who cares about the, about you. Mm-hmm. But also another warning sign is increased alcohol or drug use in general. This could be kind of hard to determine for some individuals in my experience. There are some people who tend to just be of higher use and it may or may not be based off of a warning sign necessarily initially. And the transition to using it to more excessive degrees can be harder to tell for some individuals. So it's not, it may not be like an immediate shift to a huge amount, but you, it might be progressively higher in a not as noticeable way unless you're keeping track and not everybody is. So this is a little bit harder to tell than you'd think. Right. Another acting anxious or agitated. I've seen this before living with somebody when they were really going through something mentally. They will snap more or they'll just seem like they're always kind of on edge and just always anxious about something that they have to do or something that's going on around them. So I'd say definitely watch out for that. Did they tend to isolate themselves afterwards? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, there you go. Yes, that's another one, isolation. Exactly. Uh, Another one, changing your eating and or sleeping habits. This can be a little difficult. This can be for a lot of reasons. Right, exactly. There are so many reasons why somebody would eat less or eat more than normal at some point or why they're taking more time to sleep or less time to sleep, especially if they're in school. I definitely want to eat more. Yeah, you definitely want to eat more. Your life isn't, your life is just kind of crazy and all over the place. It's hard to establish routine, I'd say, when you're in school. Just be mindful of it, definitely. Yeah, and also it can kind of lean towards feelings of wanting to get revenge or talking about revenge. This could mean essentially wanting to finish business that they might have that their expression of wanting to finish their business is the least healthy way possible and wanting to reach out to them about healthier approaches depending on the circumstances. Another warning sign to look out for taking risks that could lead to death, such as reckless driving. So if you're talking to somebody and they're telling you about, you know, this crazy story of something that happened to a party or like how fast they got on the highway on their way back home. And you're like, oh, wow, that's really dangerous. You should be more careful. And they're like, I just, I just don't really care if anything happens to me, you know, just yeah, I don't really uh, care. that. <laughs> yeah, that's not something that I'd say is normal and casual speech. Yeah. I'd say that's definitely you should ask them more about what's going on. <laughs> For similar reasons, even them talking about death more often can be a pretty big red flag, depending on, I mean, depending on the person, this can be harder to also determine as well. But it could be a red flag if the form of comedy they tend to go with that you're aware of is death related. That is a red flag in itself. Right. And a a problem with that one that I see is that self-deprecating humor is very mainstream nowadays. It's something that people talk about themselves in a really bad way or talk about, you know, wanting to die and people are all, ha ha, me too, you know. Ha, ha. So 
Yeah, exactly. So that is something that even though self-deprecating humor and things like that are more mainstream, I don't think it's really something that we should accept. You should say, are you really feeling this way about yourself? And that can open up doors to something that, you know, they might not talk about with everybody else. Exactly. So another one is displaying extreme mood swings, such as changing from very sad to very calm or very happy or giving away important possessions. That one I have seen in person myself, um, where they were giving their jewelry and stuff to friends. And, you know, I found out later on that they were thinking of taking their own life. And it's scary. You know, so if you see them writing letters to people or giving away their stuff and being like, oh, I just don't need this anymore. I'm giving it to you. They're doing the process of saying goodbye. Yes, exactly. And uh, yeah, I've had experience with that one and seeing that happen with a friend who was sending the t- sending mass messages about it. Mm-hmm. It is, yeah, it's a lot. It's also uh, if they were to make a will or anything of that sort as well that you might be aware of. Some of these may be harder to tell as somebody who is an observer and not involved with the person's life um, because this might be very personal to the individual. So as you we might have just been talking about, a lot of these can be very general and mixed with other things, and it can be very hard to make the determination of where they're at with things. It's impossible to tell, honestly, if they're leaning into the territory of taking their own life. But it's, I think, for that reason to be important, or it is important to be conscious that these signs exist and maybe not make a mental tally but maybe just keep in mind if they're starting to have more of these lately just being cautious because who knows we're at a time frame that a lot of people are at very stressful points and that's just natural Mm. the 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 tipping point for everybody is very different right so now we're going to talk about the issue of wording Ah, and i yeah i'm starting to understand this issue more and more because some of the words and phrases that I've heard and admittedly myself been using when talking to people about mental health, I'm starting to see that some of those, some of the wording that we use can be kind of damaging to some people, Mm -hmm. depending on how they feel about their situation. So one is saying, surrender yourself to the process. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that you and I, Matthew, have heard this, and I'm sure many other people have heard this too. Absolutely. And the word surrender can be damaging a damaging yeah it can be a damaging word because it is kind of implying that you are losing control of yourself and your mentality and you have to give it to somebody else because you just have no way of fixing it it also is just a matter of for example some people the term institutionalized for people who are needing to get care for mental health can feel like that if they actually need to be getting legitimate care from an institution, even if it may not be necessarily the best place to go to, given the current situation that we have with institutions, sometimes it'll happen. Care is The care is needed, but it can make people feel worse given how we use the wording in general conversation is as a negative can push the person to feeling worse about the fact that they needed to get that care in the first place, that level of care. So is that idea of are we using wording that makes them feel okay with getting the care that they need and not feeling like they are weaker for needing that care, you know? 
Another wording issue that I want to talk about that I've thought about recently is, and I've used this one as well, mm-hmm. is suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And although I still believe this to be true, it's important not to say it so casually because to them, it doesn't feel like a temporary problem. They could have been going through mental health issues, the same mental health issue for years on end from the time we said that, you know, suicide can start, you know, at 10 years old, they can be in their thirties and have been, well, I felt like this my entire life. It doesn't feel too temporary to me. So I think that if you use that phrase, you should elaborate on that. There are ways to enrich your life and make you feel better about yourself and your situation and put you in a better health space. So definitely don't use that term as you know, if I say this, it'll get the point across. I think because it probably yeah, won't. I think emphasizing the point of a the as a problem, it is not that it is wrong to feel that way, but that there are ways, even if they feel like there aren't, to start addressing it. And there are ways that you can work with others to face it, and it's not something they have to face alone. So right. the situation where they feel that way may be temporary. And that's something mm-hmm. you can help if the time comes. And the fact that they might have come to you or you came to them in the first place is already taking a step and way more right. than some people may even get at that point. So emphasizing taking steps can be very important. So we would also want to clarify in this next section some misconceptions and don'ts about suicide in general right and of some idea of how to approach it right and the first one and in some ways it might sound a little blunt but sometimes you have to be asking someone if they are considered suicide will put the idea into their head so saying oh have you ever considered committing suicide before that does not make them think well maybe i should (laughs) suicide is something that somebody has probably thought about for a long time. It's not something that somebody just says and they instantly think I should do that. So one of the things in my RA training when we did QPR. What is QPR? QPR is a method that we used in our training and that I think lots of people should go through. Um, It's an emergency response to someone in crisis and it can definitely save their lives. It is one of the most wide-taught gatekeeper training in the world. The gatekeeper kind of means that in my experience being an RA, I'm the first person that this individual has talked to about what they're going through. And you really knowing how to approach their situation can really send them on a whole path towards, you know, health and making themselves better. So yeah, I was QPR trained. I think we spent maybe three 12-hour days on QPR slash suicide oh, prevention training. And you used yeah. it. I, I used it, I would say, not more than 10, but not less than five times. That is and not just, zero. Right. Just in a one semester of being an RA, I used it that many times with my floor of like 20. Just your well, floor. Just my floor of about 60 students Jeez. with me and my other RA mate combined, about 60 students. Yeah. That's still in a lot. one semester. That's a pretty high percentage of my residents that just talked to me. That doesn't mean that 
everybody else wasn't having suicidal ideation. Some people could have. That was just who felt the need to talk to me about it. Goodness gracious. So somebody came up to me and I was talking about with them how they were feeling. And I got the idea that they might be in a suicide mindset. I would ask them, have you ever thought about hurting yourself? Or have you ever thought about committing suicide? And they would either say, no, no, it's nothing like that. And some would say, yeah, I actually have a lot lately. And Mm -hmm. so asking somebody if they've considered suicide is not something that's going to be damaging to them. It's something that some people need to be asked up front. So don't be afraid to ask that. Mm -hmm. I would very much agree. Some other misconceptions, and I will mention a lot of these misconceptions may not seem to some people as caught or it may seem like they're it's common knowledge but Mm -hmm. i think it's still important that they're said so for example thinking that people committing suicide are selfish that they're not thinking about their loved ones a lot of you might have heard that i think of course not but i think there are times you need to uh maybe it's not yourself but maybe to others give just the reminder that this is the case be promotive even if it's not to be individual feeling that way being an ally to individuals who might be in a state of mind where they get tunnel vision and not even realize there are people around to help them that to help know that they need the help which is uh, so it's important to reach out to both the people who are around them and remind them that they're not trying to be self uh, remind the people who love this individual that they need people to remind them their love, but also that um, to remind the person who might be in a state of potential ideation that they are not being selfish and that there are people there for them. So it may seem obvious, but for the same reasons, we always need to remind ourselves of it. And going off that people committing suicide are selfish, another misconception, people committing suicide are cowards and they're taking the easy way out. Like I've explained before, most of the time, I can't say definitely all the time because there's no real absolute, but most of the time, suicide is seen as the final option for those who thought about it. It's not something that was impulsive to them. So they have thought about it, you know, it's almost consumed their life thinking about how upset they are, how much in pain they are and thinking that this might be the only way to make me feel better. Mm -hmm. They are definitely not being cowardly. They just are really in need of help to get them into a better place. So definitely when you are talking to somebody and they have expressed to you that they have been wanting to commit suicide, do not leave with saying, oh, that's so cowardly, or, you know, really that you're that weak. That is very damaging language and will most likely make them feel worse about themselves. Oh, God, of course. And on that mentality, uh, the same train of thought, thinking that they're doing this to just gain attention, no. If somebody's (laughs) willing to want to share that information, it is not just a cry, but a scream for help. And even, even if it's false, why would you want to turn somebody away? who may have underlying reasons to bring it up in the first place. In this case, it's just better to be safe than sorry, right? Mm -hmm. So 
some people are very verbal about their mental health and others don't, but that does not mean that one is going through a rougher time than the other. The fact that they brought it up at all means a lot. And then another one is mental health is not dependent on life circumstances. We talked about this in the beginning when we were talking about risk factors. Mm -hmm. Just because you're more well-off than somebody or just because you are in a better physical or you know emotional situation than somebody doesn't mean that you cannot have mental health issues you are not immune to mental health issues and you should take yours just as seriously no perspective can anybody can have their reasonings internally of why they feel like they should and it can be for basically any reason as long as it makes sense mm-hmm. in their head of why they feel like it would be the best option so it's mm-hmm not important not to feel like there has to be a circumstance right Mm -hmm. we know that billionaires have committed suicide and you think they have all this money they have this great life you know why would they do that to themselves Mm -hmm. it's because mental health does not discriminate on how much money you have how many possessions you have it's not how many resources you have to get receive care how promotive of mental health your family might be for example or otherwise for that reason, just a few quick reminders. Don't leave a person expressing ideation alone. This is vital, and I think you'll want to, you'll have something to say about that as well. I feel I feel the same. But yeah, big thing. Do not leave them alone once they've expressed it. Don't promise anyone that you will keep their keep things a secret because in the, you can't necessarily keep it a secret if it is something that extreme. This is something that. I do feel in my circumstance in the circumstance I've been through I would have wanted to know ahead of time it is if you feel a circumstance outside of your control you can't necessarily have that feeling of somebody's life is just on your hands uh, especially mm-hmm. if it's not in your ability to handle it because if something does happen that level of responsibility that's there is insane So don't make them feel guilty, of course, and don't make it about you. Mm -hmm. But I know that you've had a lot of experiences as an RA yourself and you touched on it, but uh, do you want to clarify it a little bit? Yeah. So like you said, I talked about some of my RA training already, but there are some things that I haven't talked about yet that I want to give to some of you that are wanting to be allies uh, that I think would really help. So if it's somebody that you don't know, not a close friend, and they're coming to you because they feel like they can trust you, um, introduce yourself, be friendly, be compassionate, welcome them into the situation. Another one is don't encroach their space. I would, I think of this, especially if it's a close friend coming to you, sometimes when they're talking about such a heavy topic, something that is so deep to them, you don't want to go up there and, you know, no matter how much you want to maybe, you know, hug them and, you know, pat them and tell them it's okay. Sometimes they need space. So you need to ask them, whether this be a stranger or your friend, no matter how well you know them, where do you want to be? Where would you like me to be? Do you want to sit? Do you want to stand? Anything that's going to make them the most comfortable and have them open up as much as they can. So make Mm -hmm. sure that when you're talking with somebody about their mental health, that it's very between you and them. You both clarify with each other what is the best, you know, situation to be in. So it just makes the conversation a lot easier and more comfortable. 
Another thing is do not leave them alone. Reiterating that point again. (laughs) Yeah, reiterating it again. Do not leave them alone afterwards. Make sure that, you know, when they go back to their home or wherever they're going, that there's somebody there that, you know, can be trusted to help them and that before they leave, they understand what they need to do as far as next step goes or, you know, what options they prefer for next step. And again, like we said in the misconception section, just ask them if they thought about harming themselves or killing themselves and ask them how you can help. One also thing that I want to say here is that getting help is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of strength because going to get help is not an easy thing to do. And you may think in your mind that if I go get to get help, then people are going to think that I'm crazy or that I'm insane. But that cannot be farther from the truth. Getting help and, you know, opening yourself up to another person and doing something about what's going on is a very difficult and strong thing to do. So really make sure that they understand that because getting help is a crucial step in the whole process. Absolutely. Those are some of the big pointers that I have for some of you allies out there. Goodness, all stuff that I wish I'd knew and known ahead of time. But here we are. Yeah, we have to learn. Well, now you know, and we can we can help those better. <laughs> exactly. Another thing on that point: getting help on your own is not easy. Trying to find care right. with the, for example, the insurance that will let you receive it, is hard. <laughs> it's very hard. <laughs> yeah. You want to start us off on our stats on why it's difficult to get care for yourself? Yes. So one of the first reasons why it's so difficult, and this was said beautifully by Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, who is the chief clinical officer for the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, She said, in the U.S. historically, we have separated our mental and behavioral illnesses from physical illnesses, what we are learning at a pretty high cost is that having two separate and unequal systems of care results in suboptimal treatment of a patient. So physical illness is not being taken into account equally to mental health and behavioral illnesses. There is an imbalance between them, an imbalance of access to care between them, when in reality, they are both equally important to somebody's overall state of being. We have an entire uh, period of our of our American history of seeing why separate but equal does not work for something mm-hmm. important. And mental and physical health are very important. So I'm not mm-hmm. sure why this is seen as something that would work. Yeah, I'm thinking that it might be a very long-held stigma against mental health. The same reason why people think that going to get help for their mental illness makes them crazy. It absolutely does not make them crazy. It is something that should be taken very seriously. If somebody is in a mental state of crisis, I would take them to the hospital just like if somebody got their arm broken or, you know, whatever that may be. They're both, they need to be seen about and taken care of as soon as possible. I'm assuming via personal experience because I can attest to being there for an individual, but also from information we're aware of, that is not the case. And the process is very difficult for those individuals, but we will get to that. 
So, but it also according to an NCBH survey, very few patients can actually navigate the mental care health uh, space. 29% of individuals who said they wanted to access mental care for themselves or somebody they cared for didn't because they just straight up did not know where to go. And mm-hmm. I can relate to that. Honestly, when I first was wanting to assist in that process for somebody else, I just didn't know what to do. But the first thing to Google was mental health care. I just literally Google care or mental care facilities near me or therapists near me, just just Googling that way and not having a set plan for what to do as next steps, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely know that whether it's local or national television, you definitely see ads for hospitals, but you def- you don't see any ads or any displays of if you're in a mental health crisis, call these numbers exactly. or go to this place. It's just it's just not something that is as accessible to people in their day to day life. And most of what people are aware of, is of in the media for forms of care are usually way further along the process than people should be getting help for. So, for example, having to go to like some people, the representation of getting mental health care might just be after having needing to go to the hospital post attempt and that's insane to me right even on you know medical tv shows they might have somebody in there who you know had a failed suicide attempt and they were being treated in the hospital and that's the representation exactly they just don't come in and be like well i've been feeling this way and i think we definitely need to see more of that in the media of what it looks like because it looks bad for those people. It is a very uncomfortable experience. Right. So our third point is 21% of respondents said that they wanted to access mental care, but could not because of reasons outside of their control. Although this survey is key barriers limiting patients access to mental health care. It was a survey that was um, conducted. The survey did not detail what the reasons were for why people could not go get mental health, exactly like what was outside of their control. That could be for a lot of reasons. Yeah, there could be so many reasons. I think one of the reasons that come to my mind is if you have a lot of dependents, like if you are busy with, you know, your children, or if you have a family member that could be like a parent that is dependent on you 24-7, Uh, Those are some reasons that I would think people would think that they want to get mental health, but they just don't have the time or the resources for it. Absolutely. So following up on that, uh, one thing we've seen is that 11 years after Congress passed a law mandating that insurance provide equal access for mental and physical care, going back to that first point, uh, Americans are actually finding it harder to get affordable treatment for mental illness and substance abuse issues. Mm -hmm. So this goes back, honestly, what it's to me, it's just emphasizing the idea that the system just isn't working to provide care the way it is, but that's a whole other point. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And also moving on, the latest studies examined the claims of 37 million individuals with uh, commercial PPO, health insurance plans in all 50 states from 2013 to 2017. An older survey, but the information for that is still applicable to this day. Um, Hannah, you want to summarize some of the findings? Yes. So one of the first findings of this study is people seeking inpatient care for behavioral health issues were 5.2 times more likely to be 
relegated to an out-of-network provider than for medical or surgical care in 2017, up from 2.8 times in 2013. Which basically means their costs go up exponentially because they're having to use an out-of-network provider. Right. So that could be another reason why people don't want to access mental health care sources because they think, well, if I get this care, then I won't be able to pay off the debt for it. And I'm just going to be, you know, having to work extra hard to pay for the mental health that I needed. Very much so. And then looking into one of those common forms of risk that we talked about earlier, substance abuse treatment. It was even worse. Treatment at an inpatient facility was 10 times more likely to be provided as an out-of-network cost, up to 4.7 times in 2013, which when we acknowledge the costs for inpatient care, if that was considered out-of-network for the individual for their treatment, that's a financial death sentence. The cost for that would be absolutely absurd. That's crazy. Another one, in 2017, a child was 10 times more likely to go out of network for behavioral health office visit than for primary care office visit. Spending for all types of substance abuse treatment was just 0.9% of total healthcare spending in 2017. Mental health treatment accounted for only 2.4% of total spending. That is crazy. Lovely. We, we talked about in the beginning the statistics of, you know, just how prevalent suicide is, you know, the second leading cause in ages 10 to 34, yet only 2.4% of total spending accounts for mental health treatment. That seems very disproportionate, if you ask me. It sounds very disproportionate, but, well, that's what it is. Yeah. But uh, let's talk a little bit for anybody who lives in Fort Worth within the uh, Tarrant County of Texas. um, We just want to bring up a couple stats about it for reference, which has more recent data from 2018. And just trying to emphasize just in a state like Texas, which has uh, millions of individuals who are needing care. Texas has the highest percentage and number of people without health insurance in the United States. Hooray. Mm -hmm. A major problem. So for people living in Fort Worth in 2015, Tarrant County had a 1,758 to 1 patient to primary care physician ratio. I know that my school, UNTHSC, we hone in a lot on primary care. And at first, I didn't fully understand why. But now, just in my county, seeing this ratio, I definitely understand why, because there is a huge shortage of primary care physicians just in Tarrant County. What about mental health? Yeah. In 2015 in Tarrant County, there was a 1,000 to 1 patient to mental health provider ratio. Again, very huge discrepancy in the number of patients and the number of doctors. So it might take you a very long time to get in to see a mental health provider. And when you're going through mental health issues, time is a very fragile and important thing. So that's definitely kind of scary to me that, you know, there's such a big shortage of mental health care providers just in this one county. And then in 2016 to 2017 in Tarrant County, the percent of uninsured citizens on Tarrant County, Texas grew by 5.46% in just one year. That's just pretty high. Yeah. 
And just going into that, uh, just a general idea of the adults who haven't seen a doctor in the past 12 months due to cost. Um, number one, Mississippi, 19.2% of adults. And number two, Texas in the entire United States at 17.9% of adults. Uh, mental health services, or service use among adults with mental illness, We uh, Texas itself ranks at 42nd with only 38.4%. And yeah, there's a lot to get out of that. That's a very high percent of people who haven't in a full year of having had, for example, thoughts of or risk factors for ideation that could textbook be looked at. And 17.9% haven't even seen anybody about it. And then Louisiana being third at 17.6% of adults who haven't seen one. But uh, yeah, what do you think of that, Hannah? Well, to me, one of the points that you said, Texas ranking 42nd with 38.4% of people using mental health services. To me, I just think, well, there's probably more than 38.4% that need to see a mental health provider based off of how high the statistics are for mental health issues. So does this mean our mental health providers are really good at their job? Is this influenced by lack of access to care, cost, and stigma? I think that lack of access to care, cost, and the stigma around mental health are all things that contribute to that number. I think there's a lot to this topic, honestly, especially with the fact that we are trying to lean towards a more preventative model of care. That is something that just Mm -hmm. is fact. But the fact that the number for mental health care in access is the value that it is, I think says there's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. So we're going into more resources. One resource that I want to mention is the National Institute of Mental Health. If you go on their website, there is a list of resources to use to get help for what you're going through. As well as a common friend for the mental health service community, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, uh, SAMHSA. They have a exhaustive list of places that a person can go to to get care that can be localized to the area you are. They are really good about providing locations that can accept different forms of insurance. I've personally worked with some individuals who've worked with SAMHSA, and I can attest to the fact that the individuals who work with the group try very hard with the system that they're in to give care to the individuals who need it, whether it's working with community health workers to help provide access to people who need care, or working in very, very bureaucratically tied up groups to get people under insurance that they should be, uh, whatever form that it is, and not have no insurance, if that makes sense. So I can very strongly attest to the efficacy of this group. Right. So now we're going to talk about making a safety plan. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about this, Matt? Oh, boy. So this goes into the idea, though, that if it comes to the point of feeling like it would be a burden to receive help, There are ways that you can take agency if you feel like you have none to make it a simple process to anybody who you trust to guide you in that moment, even at the worst moments. So you should write down your own warning signs, have coping strategies, know the know local forms of care. This podcast will have a whole list of resources in its description that you can reach out to for all of these things. I mean, just acknowledging that having a plan can make all the difference in the world. Is there anything else you can think of, Hannah? 
I think that making your environment safe for you is another thing. Just be mindful of what things in your household you could possibly use to hurt yourself or you think could be used to hurt yourself. Mm -hmm. Like we talked about, if you have firearms in the house, that kind of seems like an easy way out. So make sure that that is not super easily accessible to you. And I would say also, if there are things in the house or your environment that you know can be triggering to you or you think you can use against yourself, Mm -hmm. make sure that you have somebody to keep you accountable for that. Myself and a personal experience that I had where I was just going through something really rough and I was looking at things in my environment in a different way, I should say, (laughs) in a vague way. My best friend that was an RA with me and she lived right down the hall, I told her like, hey, these things are making me feel something in a very negative way. So can you take them away from me? Or can you make sure if I let you know that I'm in some sort of a crisis that you help me get these away from me? So just make sure that your environment is a place where you feel safe and not where you feel like you're in danger. Absolutely. And the way that I look at this as far of a safety plan is that no matter what point in how you're feeling about things you are, that there it is never too late to be preventative in nature. And it like we had talked about earlier, it really helps with feeling agency in the moment to know who are some people that I can reach out to? What are some agencies that I can reach out to? What are some things that I know are triggering to me? What are some things in my environment that I know that tend to make me think of these things and know that I need to have them removed? What are some contacts to reach out to? What are some environments that calm me? Having all of these during the better times or even at points when feeling like you're at your lowest points can make all the difference in feeling more in control of the situation. So the importance of, as far as I see, the importance of a safety plan can go a long way. Always as a reminder, if you do nothing else and you have no time for anything else, reminding yourself of your most important reason for living. It would does it could just be one that you have to look forward to, whether it is something you wanted to do the next day, something that you wanted to eat, something you wanted to see, and the pr- why you wanted to do so, and noting why it is important you're there to want to, to live for it. Because this could be also, and you want, you can mention it to the individuals you want to be aware of so that it doesn't get twisted in a way that could make things worse. Even if it's just one reason, making sure that it is one reason that is remembered. I agree with that heavily. So now we're going to talk about keeping a bag of your essentials. When you go to a healthcare facility, having a bag of your stuff that is not going to put you in danger and is going to make you feel better is really important. There's certain things they'll let you and not let you bring. Yes. So you want to make sure that you understand what you can and cannot bring. So one thing that you want to bring is an ID card, an insurance card, contact list on paper. So a list of people that you trust the facility to call, all current medications that you're using, three outfits of comfortable, warm, day clothes without drawstrings, because that can be a potential risk factor. So yeah, anything with drawstrings, rips, metal studs, two sets of pajama type outfits. 
things that are going to keep you comfortable. Be cozy. So three sets, yes, be cozy. Uh, three sets of undergarments or socks, one sweatshirt, jacket, sweater, again, without drawstrings. <laughs> we definitely don't want drawstrings. Sandals, slip-on shoes, flip-flops, shoes without laces. I think you're starting to see a trend here. Just any strings. Strings are bad. Strings are not your friend in this case. They are not. Toothbrush, toothpaste, shampoo, conditioner, body soap, hair gel, and products that are not aerosolized. You might think, why? Well, aerosolized products can start a fire. They, they're just not... There are a lot of ways they can be used negatively. Yeah. They also, also, part of the reason is they just won't let you in with these in the first place. So it's better to have it prepped ahead of time. Right. So you want to make sure when you're bringing any type of hygiene products that they're things that are the safest form of mm -hmm. that product. So things just to keep you occupied, things to kind of de-stress, books, coloring books, puzzles, crayons, pens aren't allowed. So nothing really sharp. Pencils and markers may be allowed, but they can't have any metal components or erasers. A composition book that is non-spiral bound, no elastic loops or bookmark strings. Again, remember, no strings. Mm -hmm. And leave belts and jewelry at home. So those are some essentials that you are allowed to bring that would be good to bring with you when you go to um facility for your mental health, especially if you're in crisis. Okay. And just to give an idea, everything that we've mentioned to help in the preventative process, there is a template that we have as a resource available, the Stanley Safety Plan. Basically, it is a list you can print out or just have a version of it for yourself that you can have to give to other people. It is uh, where you can list what your warning signs that you might have it that you are aware of you have that a crisis is building. You could also list what your internal coping strategies are, what people or settings that you would want to be at that help with distracting you from your current mental state or helping with you with it, who are people you can actually ask for help. So people who can do something that can act to assist in this in that circumstance, as well as a list of professional agencies you can list, and just safe environments that you are aware of that help you feel better, at least as an option, in case it, it is an environmental circumstance. And on the bottom of it is, of course, that important question thing of the most important thing to yourself and what is worth living for listed on the bottom. It's an actually really nice template. And I would recommend just have if, if you have a history or are concerned of this being an issue and something that you want to take the first steps to a preventative approach i think that this is a wonderful template to work off of at least as a place to start for anybody as it'll also be listed in the description below yeah i would say if you have a safety bag or something in case you have a crisis like that maybe print out and put that template in there now and so you can make sure that you can quickly check off everything that you want and need to bring with you. Absolutely. So now some points specifically concerning UNPHSC. So I mentioned when I was talking about RA training QPR. So QPR stands for question, persuade, refer. 
It's an emergency response technique, just like CPR, for someone in crisis, and it can save their lives. So if you would like to request QPR training on campus, email the Office of Care and Civility at OCC at UNTHSC.edu. Personally, I think that QPR training is something that everyone should go through if they have the option to, because absolutely, in my personal experience, it really does save people's lives. Goodness gracious, I would certainly agree. There's also the contact care team that's available that could be listed if you want to speak on behalf of somebody else to get care appropriately. The number is 817-735-2740. While this is UNTHSC specific, there are forms of contact care that you can do for outside of the system that we'll mention shortly, but just mentioning that if you're part of the UNT system, they are ready to provide care for students in those circumstances specifically. And there's also the student support program mentioned previously in the stigma episode mentioned uh, expertly by both the Christians and there is basically forms of getting social support within the institution with that there is a code for helping getting their access of UNTHSC. But outside of the UNT system, there are, of course, other forms available for anybody who would be needing help. Yes. And we also have the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK. And TALK is also 8255. And like we mentioned, in the event of an emergency, please call 911 off-campus, or the on-campus number you can call is 817-735-2600. And in general, for we want to just start listing some resources for even if you are not the one experiencing any sort of issues, if you're in the circumstance where you've lost somebody to suicide or are trying to help somebody who's attempted to, to, to take their life themselves, there are lost survivors group, and one of them include the Alliance of Hope for Suicide Lost Survivors. It is a, a website you can access that has community forums. There's also counseling available through the phone and Skype. There's support groups available. They're a good uh, institution that is great for just wanting to talk through the process. Sometimes it can feel very isolating in both circumstances to have lost somebody or have been in the circumstance of almost attempting to do so and knowing there are possibly anonymous or, if you'd like, personal ways you can discuss the circumstances in some way. Having more resources for that, all the better. Right. So one date to remember is November 21st. That is International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day, also known as Survivor Day. So that's a day where people can come together for healing and support. And you can find local events for this day at the link in the description. As well, there is a resource directory for if you are aware of somebody who is suicidal themselves, has committed suicide, or are somebody who is in the state of near ideation personalgriefcoach.net. It has several different resources available for getting assistance, support groups, whether you, no matter what uh, circumstance you might in, for example, very familiar population would be veterans, for example, to just have individuals you can talk to that can relate to you and just speak through the process. Because speaking through your grief is an important first step in addressing it after the time of acknowledging that it's there. Taking those step, that step is important. Mm-hmm. Also, in the description, there is going to be a link for 
resources for Asher suicide attempt. It is at www.mentalhealth.org. The specific hyperlink for um, after a suicide attempt is in the description. Going off of that, the first few days after your suicide attempt are critical and will often raise a range of big issues and questions. And some of these questions are, what now? How can I be sure I will get back on track? And how can I stay safe? These are all things that you should think about if you have previously attempted suicide and also anyone around a person who has tried to commit suicide. These are things that you can also help them work through to help them get back on track and help them get more access to help. So it's pretty clear there aren't necessarily clear-cut answers available, but there's several things that you can do as an ally to help make things easier. For example, just letting other people assist when possible, whether it is as the provider themselves. You shouldn't have to bear the burden of providing care alone. And if you are some the individual who needs the care, of course, it's perfectly okay to accept help. If you live alone, if you want to ask someone to you trust to stay with you until things settle, you might prefer to stay at their home for a period of time. That's perfectly okay. And of course, as appropriate, being an informed patient, following a doctor's advice and taking medication they have prescribed and trying to establish a routine in a circumstance where there is a lot of uncertainties, trying to establish a routine with sleep, meals, and exercise. I think you have some thoughts on the taking the advice of medication. Yes, I definitely, um, I myself have just recently employed a medication for my health because I was feeling very, very tired and I couldn't do anything. And so I went and actually got help and got a medication and definitely making sure to take it every single day has helped me tremendously. If I ever miss a day and I get completely off schedule, I can't function as well. So that's my personal testimony to establishing a routine with your medication really helps you stay on track and helps you be in a better headspace in general. Exactly. It kind of goes into the idea of also removing things around the house that could be potential bringers of harm. If you know that this is something that could be a trigger for you, uh, reducing levels of alcohol and drug use as you are able to and obtaining help as necessary in doing so because it can help. It really can make a difference in your judgment and make you feel worse about your circumstances. It generally hurts more than it helps, even if it is something that can make things better at the time. In the long term, it only makes things worse. The health the health risks, the costs, the, the withdrawal effects, all of them can make things overall in the long term worse. So minimalizing that can go a long way. Mm-hmm. If there are people who are trying to be helpful, respond to them, but you know yourself as well. And acknowledging their attempt to help but feeling firm if you are not feeling that it is helping. Let them know to open the discussion about it, and that can go a long way towards feeling like more is being done to help you. And if people from that your network are not available, then there are appropriate services and lines that are not charged that you can reach out to, whether it is any resource listed here on this podcast, whether it is the general helpline, whether it's a pamphlet, resources exist. There are ways to start the process of healing. Right. 
having a strong support network is really important. So surround yourself with people who you trust. Absolutely. Surround yourself with people who will listen to you without judgment and who you enjoy being with. The part of that that I fully hone in on is listen to you without judgment because there are some times in my life where I try to talk about people about my situation and they were just doing a lot more advice giving like unsolicited advice giving than actually Mm -hmm. listening you should do this you should do that why aren't you doing this right yeah so you know this is also speaking to the allies out there that you are listening to everything they have to say and just because you might do something differently doesn't mean that it is the only right way to do it so make sure that you're taking everything that they're saying into account. Don't constantly interrupt them and be like, oh, wait, this is what I think about this. Really let them give the information to you because it is very hard to talk to somebody about all of the deep things that you're going through in your life. Absolutely. The road to hell is paved in good intentions. Yes. Then I think it also helps to note that there are different roles parts of your support group can have. Depending on your relationship with them, a parent or family member can help with feeling loved or cared for depending on the relation. But you can also feel that way with a friend or an associate who you trust. It is the idea is going to somebody you know you can go to that you feel either love, whether it's both loved and cared for, at the very least in the past have been cared for. And it can be similarly with a friend who's just helped you with laughing in the past or have done something socially with. There's no harm in going to them in those circumstances. Right. Like we said, people want to be of help. You're not a burden to those people. So besides parents and family members and friends, there are also roles of uh, neighbors and work colleagues. They might be good people to talk about things other than your personal life. So things like sports or current affairs or a hobby that you like, not everyone has to be involved in your mental health struggle. You definitely do need people that will be there for you and that know about it, but not every single person in your life. You can have those people in your life that just do normal everyday things with you. And I think that's really essential to have because it establishes some normalcy in your life. Another person, a religious or community leader, they may help you to connect or reconnect with spiritual beliefs or community activities. Personally, I relate to that a lot because the church was kind of a safe space for me. I know what it's not is for everybody. So I'm not telling you that if you've had a bad experience at the church to go to it definitely if it's a toxic place for you then stay away from that but personally for me it was a good place to just forget about every all the struggles that I was thinking about and just I mean it was helpful for you in in the time that you needed it so it's still valid right exactly yeah those are some roles that people in your life have that don't necessarily need to be part of your mental health problems And this may not be necessarily available for everybody, but counseling services, just at least having somewhere that may be available, even if it may not necessarily be immediately available as a counseling service to assist with strategies for stress and coping, can go a long way. Even if they're not an option that is available given your financial circumstance or your present circumstance being too immediate to think about them at that moment, 
just having them in your list of, res of resources for your support network can go a long way towards getting more pointed care specific to you if that is available to you. Of course, have every all of those other individuals lined up as well, but if there is a counseling service available, it can very much help with having a more pointed way with somebody who is no who knows you, who can professionally and accurately assist you in moments of crisis. Another similar service to that is a 24-hour phone service. We've mentioned a few. Um, they might provide non-judgmental crisis support. So if you are in a situation where you have a very judgmental family or even judgmental friends, and I know there's a few of us that are in those families, and there's a few of us who know other people that are part of those families. So if you are just feeling really judged and that you can't fully express yourself without getting some type of opinion, then I think that would be a good service to employ. So just some closing words, and I would really like you all to remember this. No, you aren't alone. Yes, we all feel this way sometimes. No, you will not always feel like this. And yes, the world is a better place with you in it. I have never met somebody who has lost somebody to suicide that said, my life is so much better without them not here. That is never something that I have heard anybody said. I think that we don't recognize our worth as much as some other people in our lives do. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> Exactly. That is the first episode of our podcast is about imposter syndrome. So if you are feeling that way, go check that out. But just know that you are worthy of living. You're worthy of everyone's love and of the love that you feel by the people who matter to you. Exactly. So as a general challenge, again, given the week that it, this will be coming out, wear purple and be open, be honest, be ready in case the time comes when uh, somebody may come to you. Whether you're a healthcare provider, a friend, a family member, or a loved, a loved one, everybody is something to somebody else. Anybody can be there for somebody else. Absolutely. Definitely does. And on that, my name is Matthew Joseph. I'm Hannah Curry. And thank you so much for your time, y'all. Have a good evening. Have a good one, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Mind Mental Health Podcast. Be sure to check out the episode notes for some resources we recommend. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck or feeling alone, you are not alone in this. Seeking help for your mental health is an important way of taking control of your life. And remember, it's okay not to be okay. Before we go... Show some love by sharing this podcast with a friend and rating it on whatever platform you may be using. We look forward to sharing new content with you every second and fourth Wednesday of the month. Thanks again for listening.